Welcome to From Concept to Creation, the podcast where we invite everyone to uncover the process of research with us. Hey, everybody, we're back at it. I'm Kate Morgan, instructional designer at Penn State World Campus. And I'm Jen Jarson, head librarian at Penn State Lehigh Valley. And in today's episode, we're bringing you our conversation with Chris Malay. Chris is Senior Director of World Campus Learning Design. He's also a PhD candidate in Learning Design and Technology in Penn State's College of Education. Yes, he is. And he's also my boss. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) So this better turn out good. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, it was a really good conversation, so it will be good. It was it was great, actually, because I've known Chris for a long time. I've worked mm-hmm. uh, in his orbit, not directly with him like I do now at World Campus. I've worked with him when he was in TLT, and we used to go back and forth with uh, different ways to incorporate technology. And to see him where he is now, he's in, in charge of the World Campus Learning Design and pursuing a PhD, like those are two, they're both so very, very busy. Mm-hmm. And and for him to balance all of that, oh, and he's married and has like a dog and a kid and he likes <laughs> to cook. So like, there's just so much going on there. Yeah. I was so struck by his motivation, personal motivation, professional motivation for doing what he does. And I would imagine that that's an important part of helping him be successful with all these demands on his time. And to me, you know, the intellectual curiosity that drives him, that just was really striking, I think, and something that I think is probably really powerful and important for his path. He is definitely an example of lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. And along the way, he's been at Penn State forever. I think mm-hmm. all his degrees are from here and um, his, he's worked here forever. Mm-hmm. So he's really built this huge academic community of peers and mentors and and people to really have these conversations with. So it came together beautifully. I will tell you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really good conversation. And we hope you all enjoy it as much as we did. Welcome, Chris. We are so excited to have you on our podcast. Thank you for the invitation. So, Chris, you and I have kind of known each other three, four years. We've like crossed paths several times, um, specifically in teaching and learning with technology. I remember meeting with you and asking you questions when I was at Penn State Lehigh Valley. And now you're the senior director of World Campus Learning Design. Um, You've been there since 2016. I joined World Campus two years ago, so now we officially work together. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm happy. For the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your role at World Campus? Sure. So as a senior director for the unit, uh, we are responsible for the design and development of uh, a, a wide variety of online courses. In fact, that that variety of courses is one of, one of the things that makes, I think, instructional design an exciting profession is getting the opportunity to kind of learn about many different, uh, many different academic subjects. We have about 500 courses in our portfolio, about 45 different academic programs we support. So, you know, it's a really interesting to get that sort of varied perspective of the university and and with with world campus and online courses, we have wide variety of types of students from traditional age students to adult students who are kind of managing this, which I can sympathize with uh, kind of juggling school and life and jobs and and whatnot, um, and and kind of just helping them be successful in that context. So, um, so our team is what you would expect from a learning design unit. We have instructional designers, which Kate is a marvelous instructional designer. Um, but we've got, uh, you know, technical staff programmers, uh, multimedia people and 
um, you know, all kinds of other roles that support that kind of end to end process of making sure that faculty and students are successful in, in online learning. So uh, I have, in addition to the kind of core responsibility as the core mission of world campus learning design, I provide leadership in a couple of different areas around the university um, regarding governance of, of online learning, you know, some tech, technology infrastructure stuff like learning management system and, and various ad hoc committees like right now, and we can get into this in more detail. I'm leading some efforts around the university to think about how we respond to a generative AI like ChatGPT. So there's things like that that mm-hmm. pop up that I'm in a good position to be aware of that they're happening and, um, you know, able to mobilize it. As Kate mentioned, because we've worked together for a long time, I've been at Penn State in different roles for a really long time. So I have a broad network there. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I'm able to do in my position is um, connect that network together to solve problems, kind of mobilize people, um, you know, so so it, when something like that generative AI issue came up for everybody. And I mean, everybody in education is dealing with this right now, um, kind of knowing the right people around the university to, to pull into that conversation um, and, and respond to it quickly. Or, you know, during the pandemic, being able to know who the right people were to, to talk to, to kind of on the fly solve problems. Um, I really draw on that network a lot. So that's, you know, in a nutshell. That um, institutional history is a key component to really helping uh, keep things moving in the right direction and your zeal for all of the the technology integration you know the curve for technology impacting us on a daily basis has become um, something that we really have to think about all the time mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's hard it's hard to, it's hard to keep up but that network makes it a little easier yeah Chris, now were your earlier, it sounds like your earlier roles at the university weren't necessarily part of World Campus then. You were working in other departments. Right. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about those roles. Well, how far do you want to go back? Because I, I actually, I started actually technically working for the university when I came here as an undergraduate. So I have a bachelor's and a master's degree here. Oh, wow. In addition to the PhD that I'm working on now. But when I was here as a, as a I came here in, in 96 as an undergraduate, um, and and because of my some of my technical background that I had already had at the time, I started working in the computer lab. So I've, you know, I've in various ways had jobs at this university for what twenty five or 30, 30 years or so. Um, so your network truly is deep and and yeah. vast, right? Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but uh, but but in terms of just more of a, a full time. You know, when my, when my career started here, actually, I've been involved with online learning pretty much since the beginning. My first my first full time job with the university was with with the newly minted College of Information Sciences and Technology um, in their Solutions Institute, which was one of the kind of first organized formal groups that was you know dedicated to um, online learning at the university or mm-hmm. pretty early on. Anyway, um, I sort of have some different interests and, and have touched on some different areas throughout the different jobs that I've had that prepared me really nicely for my current position, but um, mm-hmm. started out as a, actually as a multimedia developer. My, my undergraduate was when I was studying computer animation. Um, and so my first job with Solutions Institute was as a multimedia developer and then a programmer and then managing the programming group and the multimedia group. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't a sort of a siloed thing where the instructional designer met with the faculty and, and just got multimedia help. The whole entire team 
was in the design meetings with the faculty um, because we felt that, you know, it's important for the multimedia developer to understand the pedagogy of the course and the the um, the goals of the instructor, um, what the, how they wanted that course design, you know, that made us all better. So just by being really close to that process, I started picking up a lot more of the, um, you know, the learning, the learning theory behind everything and how those decisions were made and also all the operational bits and how, how a team like that functioned cohesively. Um, and so then that kind of led me to getting my master's in, in education and kind of de- providing more depth in that. So I had that, you know, I had the creative side of it. I had the technical side of it. Then I filled in on the education and learning theory side of that and kind of continued to, to deepen that. And I think for a really effective learning design unit, um, it's useful for the leader of that unit to, to have some understanding of all those different working parts. So, yeah, I think your, your history really um, has led you to uh, an informed leadership position. And, yeah. and to be honest, the transparency of the development of courses here has been um, just great for everybody. I, I, I am, I'm amazed. A hundred percent of the people I work with in world campus love their jobs, like love them. Like, you know, you want to get up early and have a meeting. You want to work late. Let me help you do this. And that part has made also the job just feel less like a job Mm -hmm. and more like you're working in a community. And, you know, we're all working towards online learning, which is my own passion. So like, I think that education is the key to a lot of things. So. Yeah. Chris, I'm interested. Um, to hear, you know, about your long history with Penn State, but the variety of roles that you've had at Penn State as being a student and, you know, working at the university. And I'm just curious, like, as you think back over the trajectory of being an undergraduate student, working professionally, going back to school, it sounds like, to get graduate degrees, including the PhD program you're in now, do you feel like you have to, like, separate your student and your professional hats? Yeah, it's it's always been very intentional, and I, you know, I'm I'm a, a very self aware person, and I know what mm-hmm. I want to spend my time doing. Kate, you're absolutely right. When you love your job and you're interested in what you do and what you study, it makes it a lot easier. And I and I have never, I have never wanted to do anything to advance my career in a direction that made me more money, but I wasn't mm. that interested in. You know, that, that my focus has always been on how do I spend my time doing more things that I'm interested in and that are, you know, that, that, um, you know, touch on my intellectual curiosity. Um, so, you know, like I said, when I, my early experience was in maybe some more technical areas, but getting to work really closely with instructional designers and really being interested. And I've always been interested in the mind and and psychology and, um, and, and how the brain works too, is just sort of a, as a hobby. So, so kind of getting to work alongside instructional designers, um, and thinking about the, the pedagogy of an online course and all the ways that a student, um, engages with content and with, with their peers and with instructors and the learning process and what elements of the design of that experience are conducive to learning and what are barriers to learning and making good decisions about every step of that, that journey with the student. Um, I, I just, I had a desire to learn more about how all that works and also in a, in a fairly scientific way. So, so I think graduate studies suited me well because I wanted to, I kind of had a, 
an informal understanding of those things by just through a process of osmosis, you know, learning those mm-hmm. things. But 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 then really wanting to having that desire to to um, be more rigorous about it, and so actually getting into into graduate school with my master's and reading scholarly work in the space and understanding all the theories underlining all the things that instructional designers make all these decisions and they, they just seem sort of intuitive to them. But then you get into graduate studies and you realize that there's a, you know, with education, there's, you know, hundreds of years probably of, of theory behind it, um, that, that are informing their decisions. So that, that Mm -hmm. was part of my journey of getting deeper and and more rigorous in in that space. And, Hmm. um, I have a real quick question about that. Um, you're in a very forward thinking space, Mm-hmm. And we work in a very traditional university. And have you had any pushback as you move through this area, bringing your great ideas? Yeah, I often want to move faster than than the inertia of the of the institution allows. But I think as I get older, I see the wisdom in making safe decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. our, the success of our students is paramount to me and being respectful of them and not using students or faculty as guinea pigs for some new technology, but, but just rather, again, being rigorous about it and being thoughtful about it and understanding, you know, the, the theory behind why the application of a particular technology would be beneficial and seeing what other researchers have done in that space before you go dive into it is smart. So there is a tension um, between particularly in online learning where so much of the learning is computer mediated. So you really want to use the the best technology to ensure that that computer mediated learning is effective. Um, so you do need to think about that and be forward thinking, but you also need to be smart about it. Um, so that, that, that's always a tension of mine. And I, I've become more comfortable with that tension and where the sweet spot is with that with that tension over time, for sure. Gotcha. Okay. So so now you're in this PhD program. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that it's um, the program is Learning Design and Technology in the College of Education. Do I have that Correct. right? Yep. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what that program's been like for you so far? Sure. This is another instance where particularly you know, I was in this senior director role and, and with, mm-hmm. with my job and which is a demanding, a demanding position and a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really essential for me to get into a program where my research would align really well with the work that I was, that I was doing just again, from an intellectual standpoint, like being able to kind of cross pollinate ideas between my work and my program was really important to me, but also, my research, it it has practical benefits to my job. The things that I'm that I'm learning, I'm applying to my work. In fact, some parts of at least from the methodology standpoint of my research relates to machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I and I literally just got out of a meeting right before this podcast with some other leaders within World Campus, where we were looking at applications for um, artificial intelligence to help support decision making within the within the unit. And one of the people in the meeting said, well, you're studying artificial intelligence, so maybe you should lead this initiative. Um, and, and so there's there's like something that I, it started out with this desire to understand how students learn in this computer mediated sort of environment. And 
looking at I have been, have been really invested in learning analytics over time. So looking at data and trying to understand what traces of the learning process show up in data and how like different ways I can analyze that. And so the machine learning kind of kind of layered onto that as a methodology for understanding that data. Um, and and obviously there's a lot of work around artificial intelligence and that's becoming a lot more accessible for researchers and mm-hmm. and programmers. Um, and so that built built up. And so it, I came to that through this kind of core first principle of impacting learning effectively and, and how that works in online. Um, but but then those skill sets really align with what World Campus and Penn State as an institution need to do to support learners, you know, effectively at mm-hmm. scale. So, you know, there's, there's, I, for everything that I do and for everything that I'm sinking like endless hours of my, my time <laughs> into researching and thinking about, um, there's a thread that goes through all that. Mm-hmm. That's fairly logical, um, for me. Yeah. So, yeah. So it sounds like a lot of synergy. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I definitely think too, like, um, timing, like, you getting into the programming, your personal interests, like this is something that has to be talked about because it's on the news every day. Like if we weren't <laughs> talking about it, if we didn't have someone with the passion for learning more, um, I think that would be a challenge. And it's it's a scary, exciting, challenging, and kind of sometimes hard to understand world out there in terms mm-hmm. of AI. Like where is it going? And people are all over the place. So, mm-hmm. you know, having knowledge is power. <laughs> so your work is, um, and continued work. And, and I always found that when I was in school, when I was working, being forced to be in the like research portion of it really helped keep you current. Like, you know, yeah. you can always say, yes, I'm going to be current, but like, sometimes you're not, but when you're half forced to as part of your curriculum that can really yeah. help. So where are you in your process for the PhD program? Yeah, and I, and I will say um, just just as a response to what you just said is it, with my job it's easy to get tied up in the and administ- administrivia of it <laughs> and, for sure. and, and and just kind of going from meeting to meeting and never um, having mm-hmm. a time to just kind of think and so um, the, in a in a in a selfish sort of way doing the PhD was giving myself permission to just to just think and there I will find myself sometimes my wife will walk into my office and I'm just sitting there in the chair, staring out the window. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm just like, I'm, I'm thinking like, I'm literally working through ideas as fast as I can in my, in my head. And I'm just staring out the window. Um, so, so that's, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to give yourself permission when there's other demands. Following that thread, do you have a space where ideas come to you? Like some people go for walks or in the shower or staring out your window. I don't know if you have like a, when I really need to think about something, this is what I do. Yeah, I think I'm like a very cerebral person, so it can really be anywhere. I I I suppose I have a bit of a short attention span too, so I think my my only criteria is some degree of of silence. I often have my earbuds in, and I'm playing like white noise just to drown everything out, so that I can just be fully, fully in my head. I I run every morning, and I um one of the ways that I make the PhD program work for me is I have um. I have an application that takes my research articles, PDFs, and will read them. And, and it does a really good job of um, speaking them in a, in a real natural voice. Any given week, I have like 75 pages of, you know, risk, dense research articles that I need to, to need to read. So a lot of times I'll just, uh, you know, put the dog on his leash, fire up a research article and go for a run and just listen to the, listen to the article, at least do a first pass on it. Wow. 
you know, just through audio and like 250 words a minute, just like kind of a little fast. And then I get through a bunch of articles and then I'll go back and take notes and whatnot. But it's, um, it's just, a, it's one of those, like, I don't want to say multitasking, but it's a way for me to kind of in a smart way, merge my life and with my studies to make it all kind of work. And I'm pushing on 45 years old here. So I, um, I don't, I can't pull all nighters. Like I can't work 12 <laughs> hours anymore. So the more that I can like fit everything together. Work smarter, not harder. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious what the, what application do you use for that? What is that tool? Uh, the, it's a iPhone app called voice dream. Okay. And it's, it, it's, it's great. Like everything, everything is loaded up. The first thing every week is I go into canvas and I pull my articles out and I put them into that app. It's just mm-hmm. to get myself ready. Cause then I, Again, I, you know, I might be cooking and my, one of my other passions is cooking as so I'm mm-hmm. sitting there cooking up some chicken or whatever. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I've got a research article pumping in my brain. <laughs> I, I love that. I love learning about other people's um, sort of tools, like, you know, hacks essentially to make these things work. Wow. Um, so it sounds like um, the articles that you're referring to, those are maybe research articles because it sounds like you're really deep in your dissertation. Are you done with your coursework already for the PhD and focusing on your dissertation? Or are you still earlier in that process? I'm on the tail end of getting most of my coursework done, Okay, but zoning in enough on what my dissertation is going to be about. Okay, that um, There's a natural trajectory into my dissertation right now. A lot of what the courses that I'm taking right now that I'm just kind of wrapping up are providing that those last little bits of theoretical foundations for the mm-hmm. for the dissertation and and so yeah so I've got I've got a pretty solid idea about what my dissertation is going to be. No, no, I was going to ask, uh, you know, just for the benefit of someone who's interested in a PhD and doesn't know much about it, like what do the first you know part of earning your PhD those courses they're foundational, but what kind of things are they teaching you? Um, well, at, at the PhD level, I would say kind of historically what the foundational theories were. Um, and so, you know, for, for my case, at least with Penn State and the in the LDT program, it's really focused on um, sociocultural learning. So really the, the social aspects of learning. And, and any any PhD program, any any academic program is going to, to some degree, reflect the inclinations of the faculty that are part of that program. So there's a lot of different sub threads of, of, of learning theory that, um, you know, some other program and some other college is, is going to focus on. So the, it used to be the constructivist, but now it's sort of more sociocultural learning is, is really what people seem to be focused on. Computer supported collaborative learning, CSCL is another sort of sub thread that I'm really where I'm residing, which is, which is really the combination of collaborative learning, social learning, and that com- computer mediation and, and what role uh, technology plays in mediating or essentially shaping how, how students are learning. Like, like the medium, medium is the message, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's that, that computer, that computer shapes the way we interact with each other and how mm-hmm. we communicate knowledge, uh, manage knowledge and, and communicate with each other. So that's sort of good starting from those foundational theories up to specific applications of technology with those foundational learning ideas underneath it. And then, and I would say the interesting thing now as I, as I'm sort of getting into the dissertation phase is that the big difference between a master's and a PhD is that at the PhD, there's a reason it's a terminal 
called a terminal degree because you don't, there's not really any point in going beyond that. Once you're beyond the PhD, you're, you're like a faculty member mm-hmm. um, because what you're doing as at the PhD level is contributing new knowledge. So you're doing something that nobody else has done. Um, and so it's important. And I guess to, to further answer your question, Kate, is like um, a lot of what leads you from the beginning of the program to when you're getting to your dissertation is understanding where the gaps are in the field and where the most interesting problems to solve. And you can't do that unless you very deeply understand the field. Like you understand all the researchers and what they're doing. And now you get to the point where I'm reading these papers and I'm like, I would have done that differently. Or like, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a dead end that they're going in. You, just, you start to get a little arrogant about, cause, because you're working at the same level that they are. And you're like, I understand like, this is irritating me what they're doing because I can mm-hmm. tell that that's not how I would have approached that problem. Um, now I'm going to um, approach it differently. And, and again, from my background, and it's useful in that degree because um, there's not a lot of people that have a depth of understanding of education as well as being a programmer for half of my life and like being able to think, oh, if I use machine learning and artificial intelligence to solve this problem, I can do... I can I can extract some insights about how these group of students communicate with each other. Like I'm doing a lot with natural language processing where I'm looking at discussion board posts and training training a machine learning model to understand various patterns of social learning that are based upon the theory. So I'm basically baking theory into a machine learning model and then putting mm-hmm. that uh, to work on a discussion board interactions to understand really deeply and at scale different different patterns of interaction and how those correlate to, you know, certain learning out, outcomes. So it kind of like, and and there's, you know, it's just a, a very particular set of skill sets that are required to do that and to keep all those. Like, that's why I'm like staring out the window because I'm like, oh, what about this learning theory and how does that relate to what machine learning can do and how do they how does all this stuff connect together and then I piece it all together and I write some code and then I do analysis and then I write something. So. I'm at that really super creative part where I, I can kind of manage all the bits myself. And, and so that's what my dissertation is going to be. So Chris, it sounds like um, that you are really finding a lot of synergy. And I think you mentioned this even before between your work and your research, you know, it sounds like it's your work that drove you to want to pursue this research through the PhD program, but that while you're doing the research in your pre- PhD program, you're really thinking about the potential application for your work. And I'm just right. curious, like, how present that work context is in your mind while you're trying to generate this research design and what it is you want to do for your dissertation? Or, you know, I guess I'm just asking how you're managing thinking about all these different contexts at once. Yeah. Yeah. The, the practical applications of my research are often at the forefront of my mind and there's very little that I'm doing that's sort of pure theory. Mm-hmm. And I understand the importance of that. Mm-hmm. And if you are, do want to engage in this journey yourself where you're interested in really developing the theory, I think that that's a wonderful thing and that's, and that's needed. I just can't help again having as long of a career as I have mm-hmm. had to to not think. Um, I, I often find these thoughts intruding in my mind. Like that's that's academically interesting, but it has no bearing on reality. Or I guess the, I'll, I'll say the specific. This I'll give you. I'll ground this in a specific example. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at um, knowledge building theories. Uh, Scott Scardamali and Berater. Um, 
that that they kind of push this through knowledge co-construction. Part of what a lot of the studies that use that theoretical uh, perspective um, utilize a particular piece of software called Knowledge Forum. Um, and that structures the knowledge building process in a particular way that is really well aligned with learning theory, but also produces really great data that's good for researchers to analyze. The problem with Knowledge Forum is that we would never use it at Penn State. It's it's a piece of software that was developed by researchers and um, and it's not it's just not an enterprise software that's supported by a big vendor that, that mm. we, we would be like a criteria for us at Penn State. So part of what I'm trying to do with with my particular methodology is to say, how do I look at the foundational, the underlying theory of knowledge building and um, and and use these machine learning techniques as computational approaches to analysis in a way where I can use, I can study learning and it's in the more naturalistic context. So like where, where meeting students where they are, not mm-hmm. pushing them into some niche software, particular environment that's useful for my studies, but, 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 but where they're learning, where they're learning in the most common way that, that is, you know, typical for online education. Um, and, and so that was a particular, like the practical challenge, the practical constraint that I recognized shaped in some ways the, the choices that I made mm-hmm. regarding my, my research and methodologies and theories that I, that I used. So there's that def- definitely give and take that interplay between the practical aspects and the theoretical aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you're wrapping up your coursework, you're really developing your ideas for your dissertation. The rest of your journey, I mean, hasn't yet been charted for your PhD, but what do you expect to have happen from here? Like, where will you be going next? That's a good question. And I reflect on that a lot because a lot of times people, this is a question that kind of rattles, rattles around in, in the heads of, of people who are considering a terminal degree, mm-hmm. whether it's a, you know, at least in the education space, whether it's a PhD or a DED is like, why do I want this? What do I, what do I want to do with this degree? And so it might be just getting into the, um, uh, becoming a faculty member at some point. Um, for me, obviously that's not you know, maybe maybe there's some opportunity for me to to do more more teaching or research or you know a deeper integration with the College of Education. Um, but I I think that the reason that people talk about how tough a PhD is and um, it, it, there's a lot of stress mm-hmm. involved in it. There's a lot of like weekends where you instead of playing with my my nine year old daughter and you know I'm reading research papers mm-hmm. and and uh, and so. If I was just doing this as a vehicle to some job, that would be really, really hard. My motivations are my own intellectual development, uh, deepening the things that I've I've organized my life around helping students learn better. Mm-hmm. And so this is just sort of a natural step. Again, it gives me an excuse to um, get really deep and rigorous about questions that I'm really personally curious in anyway mm-hmm. and gives me that space to do it. Um, so, you know, if I come out of this and I have the opportunity to teach a little bit more and uh, I have the credentials to write research papers that are on things that I'm interested in, but I don't have any of the requirements to publish at a certain rate, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's asking me to do that. I'm just, I might do it because it's, it's interesting to do it. Mm-hmm. That, that's a wonderful position to be in. Like I, I, I am purely intrinsically motivated right now, which is um, 
which is a wonderful place to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, the impact you could have in your role at World Campus based on your research is um, it's something that is, you know, to consider. You 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 sit at the table with a, a lot of yep. leaders and you are you are very sincere about your research and your curiosity. And um, I think that's that's going to be very good for everyone involved. Penn State, World Campus, all of the things, the students. Yeah. Um, so what I was going to say before was, okay, so you you had this spark, like it's time for me to deep dive a little more into, you know, possibly joining a PhD program. So you start the PhD program. How has your path like either narrowed or changed along the way? Did you come in thinking I'm going to do this research and then this outcome? Or has it been a combination of like, oh, this is a response I got from some code I did let me tweak it and go this way. Or now AI is really big in with like chat GPT. How are those things impacted the way you thought about what your dissertation is going to be? Yeah, well, I, w- I would say that um, going into the program, I was really interested in the cognitive parts of learning. So what's going on in, in an individual student's mind as they're learning and wrestling with ideas and you know, uh, adapting their own mental schema to new ideas and overcoming their own biases or whatever. Th- those were all things that traditionally interested me. And again, because of the particular faculty and, and college of education here, um, that focus and really just where learning is in, in general right now is sort of a understanding the importance of the social aspects of learning cl- and collaboration and how that relates to individual cognitive development mm-hmm. with with a PhD, you really need to find that that where, where that gap is, and where, where I think that gap is is taking that um, using the computational approach to analyze social learning, but doing that in the specifically in the context of online learning, which poses all kinds of other challenges for learners. So understanding social learning and, and online learning is really important, and the reality is is that because because a lot of online learning is um, structured as learning anytime, anywhere, um, there, there oftentimes is not a strong focus on the social elements of those experiences. It's sort of, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to get my degree between, you know, going to my job and taking care of my kids. And, um, and so just to give me the flexibility to do that, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be in a classroom synchronously with other students. Um, and I, I think that increasingly in the students that I talk to through, you know, the World Campus Student Advisory Board and, and other places where I get to talk to, you know, students is that um, is they want that social learning experience. It's 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 um, very rewarding for them to interact with their peers. Um, there's that, you know, that, that old idea that um, students hate group work. Well, I think that group work is designed poorly a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what they do want to interact with each other. They just don't want to interact with each other in a badly designed way. Um, so I think it's worth studying those things and, and really kind of getting to the ground truth of what's going on in those in those collaborations between online learners mm-hmm. and maybe try to develop systems that um, optimize that experience or really try to um, strengthen the best parts of that and, and really try to support them or scaffold them around um, the hardest, most annoying parts of, of collaborating mm-hmm. online. Um, that those, those things are worthwhile problems. So it's interesting from just from a theory standpoint and a gap in the, in the scholarship and the space, but also just from a, the, where the, 
the future of online learning and what we need to do as World Campus to support that, um, those things line up really, really naturally for me. It's really interesting. Mm. So when you're designing this computational approach to analyze learning, you're, mm-hmm. I think a moment ago, you mentioned that you're looking at like discussion boards that mm-hmm. students have used where they're interacting with each other. So you're sort of taking those text-based artifacts and analyzing them to see yeah. how students are interacting. And am I, am I on the right track yeah. there? Yeah. And it, and it, and it really comes down to natural language processing. So not mm-hmm. just, um, it, there's a superficial way of thinking about this where you're just counting how many times somebody posted in a discussion board or how many times they replied. Sure. That's not at all what I'm doing. That might be a, 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 tra- a trace of data. That might be a data point that I'm, that I'm incorporating into my analysis. But really what I'm trying to get at is what they're actually saying in those interactions. For example, when you're knowledge building with a peer or you're engaging in argumentation or other patterns of, of collaborative learning, um, you might say, I think that idea is interesting, but I think you missed this part from the, from the readings that talk about this and, or, you know, relating that, those experiences to your, to your own personal experiences. So, so that, that's really important for learning is to make personal connections with the concepts. So there's different things that are in the discussion board posts that indicate how a student's thinking, how they're interacting with each other, how they're building on each other as ideas. And, and that seems fairly logical, but actually training mm-hmm. a computer to read and understand those things mm-hmm. is challenging. And that the language is messy and complex. Um, but on the flip side of it, we've seen with the advent of generative AI like ChatGPT, if you take the right approach to the architecture uh, of these models, how close they can get really deeply understanding human language and even speaking mm-hmm. in a very naturalistic way. Um, so I'm, I'm using, I'm trying to utilize the same tools, the same architecture that's under chat GPT um, as a way to parse through that language and then layer the theory on top of that to, to say, this is exactly what they're talking about. These are the main ideas in these interactions. These are This is when a student's disagreeing with another student. This is when they're agreeing. This is when they're challenging each other. This is when they're adding new concepts, all those things, and then piecing all, to, all that together and saying, you know, these are these seem to be really promising ways of interact, interacting with each other. Um, and so once I kind of understand that and build the models, the models that reflect those patterns, then I could, for example, and this is sort of the foundation that I'm building, is to construct uh, intelligent agents basically to scaffold the process. So you could imagine, you know, a little AI assistant as you're collaborating as a online student, you're interacting with your peers. You might need a little nudge to say, there's a really interesting conversation going on over here that seems to align with your interests. You know, mm. maybe not nothing that prescriptive. Maybe mm-hmm. it's actually helping the instructor to say, this is a promising thread of this conversation within your class. It might be worthwhile for you to jump in and elaborate mm-hmm. on that so that so that you can draw students' attention to something important that's happening that due to some affordances of the technology, like discussion boards just kind of stink. They're just not very good user interfaces. Mm-hmm. But the, a well-informed instructor might be able, with a little bit of help, be able to shape the learning process and focus people's mm-hmm. attention on things that are useful. So there's a lot of different reasons why 
without getting too prescriptive, like having robots tell you what to think. <laughs> it's just focusing, helping you focus on things that are important from a learning perspective and, and mm. having all that stuff based upon good learning theories and all works. So, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. It's uh, incredibly exciting um, to even hear about. Like, it, it's like you're the, the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you think about it, like 20 years ago and now where we are. And it's just like, yeah, this is very, very cool. And there is so much good to be derived from it because the construct of discussion boards, the construct of learning online, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it, uh, it gets a bad rap, but there are people who genuinely want to learn and try very hard. And sometimes they get lost in the mix or they don't get what they need from that kind of interaction and peer to peer Mm -hmm. learning, you know, faculty, you know, faculty to peer learning that's all so important to the process and to expanding the learning, the, the understanding, the, co- the comprehension, all of those things. So um, very cool. Um, we're lucky to have someone who's so interested in yeah. <laughs> pursuing it. <laughs> One other thing I would say, I would say too, and just in terms of other people who are maybe listening and, and working on a PhD or thinking about a PhD is to not, I, I think in order to do any interesting work like this, you need to not get boxed into a particular scholarly community or a particular way of thinking or a particular field. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I do um, is grounded in those foundational learning theories, but it also touches on sociology and linguistics and computer science, um, you know, and statistics and, and other things. So I would say if you really want to do the most interesting work, most interesting research, do not be afraid to delve into vastly different uh, d- different fields and different literature that than what's being assigned to you in your classes. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times, at least if you get farther down the line and you have that good, you have, you need that good foundation, but then you start to make conceptual connections too. This would make a lot more sense if I had a better foundation in linguistics. I mean, I'm like studying language. I need to understand linguistics. So I start reading some papers on linguistics and then you, then suddenly those problems pop in your head and that's where you get the novel solutions that nobody else had considered before. So yeah, be, be fearless about what you're reading and really diverse adopt that as a, as a, as a pattern. It seems like you have done a lot of, you know, thinking and, and just really going through your own resources to kind of follow your path. Do you have mentors and, and how did you connect with an advisor? Like, what does that look like? I have had the fortune professionally to have had a, a good community of people that I work with. A lot of the faculty that, you know, are my, my advisors now, um, I've, I, prior to having that scholarly relationship with them, worked with them professionally. So I had those relationships and understand, stood what they were researching and what their interests were and what their personalities were like. Um, but also, you know, for example, with, with, Part of the foundation of the computational approach that I'm taking comes from the learning analytics community that I've been part of. And that's primarily been on the professional side. But I, a lot of times I find myself um, reading papers written by people that I had a cool conversation in a bar with at a conference. Mm. Um, so like, the, you know, there's this, these, uh, these long relationships that I've had with, with really the people that wrote the seminal papers in the space that I could shoot an email to and say, Hey, I read your paper and I have a question about this. Um, so that's, that's good. I, I think, um, I think having a good relationship with the faculty, the scholars in the program that you're in is, is, is really important, but also having that broader 
network and, 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 you know, being willing to go to conferences and make connections with people and ask them questions and stuff is, is super important. So you're not getting too siloed or thinking about your ideas in a particular, you know, narrow sort of way, um, is, is really important. Mm -hmm. It strikes me as, um, you've been sharing all of this with us, Chris, that, you know, you mentioned yourself that you're very personally curious, that you feel like you're intrinsically personally curious. Um, and it sounds like you're, you know, incredibly motivated. I guess I'm wondering, is that something that has been innate for you your entire life? Or are there any like habits or like attitudes that you've tried to practice in order to cultivate that motivation and that curiosity? Yeah, I would say that I've always been curious. I always read a lot. I mean, that's the main thing, I think, because you're going to have to, in graduate studies, you're going to be reading a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to make sure that my daughter reads reads really regularly and cultivates reading as a habit. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't even just have to be anything that's too too serious. Just just reading um, is, a, is a really good habit early on, but just a general curiosity. And, you know, with the internet now and, well, actually... ChatGPT is an amazing tool for just bouncing ideas around. You can ask it interesting questions and get into it. Mm -hmm. and interesting intellectual conversation with it. It's kind of a weird, a weird <laughs> thing to say. Like if I said that a year ago, it would have seemed odd. But it, but it does reflect the sort of things that I like. Where I might not always have like when you're getting to the later phases of a PhD, you're so specific about the theories and the in mm -hmm. the methodologies that you have. Like there's like a four or five people in the world that I could really have a deep conversation about what I'm doing with. But <laughs> chat GPT is one of those people now. So I can go down the rabbit hole of having weird conversations with them, but uh, <laughs> reading, reading a, a great diversity of things, exploring your, mm -hmm. um, you know, intellectual kind of, if, if you have an itch that you need to scratch to do that and not get too pigeonholed because somebody else Maybe, you know, depending on what you kind of experiences you have in school, you can kind of get pigeonholed into a certain area of inquiry, or if you're in a particular program where, you know, at the PhD level, I suppose at the master's level to some degree too, you might have an advisor who is getting, is encouraging you to do their research basically for them or like expanding. Mm -hmm. They, they have their own research ideas. And if you come into that sort of situation and you're like, and they say, what are you interested in? What do you want to research? And you say, I don't know. Well, they're going to say, well, I'm doing this research. You should go down this path. <laughs> but if you walk into right. that situation and you say, I'm interested in computational approaches to <laughs> to collaborative learning, and, and I have the foundations of that, and I really feel strongly that this is where I want to go and this is why, um, you're just going to end up being able to do things you're interested in and not just stuff that other people are telling you to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, I don't, this is, you know, the, uh, certain predilection of mine that I, don't, I just don't really like people telling me what to think and do. <laughs> so I, I just, I want to have control of my own destiny and I want to, you know, sure. so, so I, uh, so the more that you can create a situation where you're kind of shape your own trajectory, the, that's, mm -hmm. that's a good place to be. Mm -hmm. um, we've touched on this already, but would you say you work on your PhD or your research every day a little bit? Like what is the time commitment that you are taking out of your life and how do you balance that? I mean, you know, you mentioned all nighters are out of the question, <laughs> but like, how do you balance the work you're doing with the, the work you have to do with family and, and all of the other things? Do you have a process or is it just something that's kind of always there is like 
Yeah. A lot of times I look at my schedule, you know, with all my meetings and stuff, and I try to carve out little bits of the week where I can focus on some things. So there's things that I purely have to do for class that maybe don't have as strong of a connection to my job. Um, and those things I really just need to, need to do off hours because I can't really mm-hmm. justify cutting into the, you know, I'm getting paid to do a certain job. Um, but there, there's like a, we're in the Venn diagram of, 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 um, job things and PhD things, there's that overlapping part where I can say, I can justify carving out part of my day to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say, I would say every day I'm doing a little bit of, of that. I don't do all nighters, but I, because I have that audio app, I can, I can mm-hmm. in the evenings listen to that. And so I at least get a passing kind of understanding of the articles so I can use my time effectively. I would also say when you, when you spend so much time immersed in, in your particular area of research, you, you dream about it. <laughs> like I, I have to say that I, <laughs> my mind's turning on parts of this a little bit all the time. So, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I actually have an application. The, some of the computational approaches that I'm using, I, and Kate, you'll see this probably soon, as soon as I get enough of it put together to share with the learning design unit, um, mm-hmm. a, a, like a discussion board analysis tool that's not as deep in the natural language processing, but it's taking some of those concepts out and thinking about what, like what subset of my research is very, very practically useful for an instructional designer and a faculty member that's thinking about their courses and how to improve them. Um, so there's it's code that I'm actually actively writing that, that powers that. And, and so, mm. you know, there's a lot of, I would say every day I'm chipping away at this because of the way I've structured you know, all these things in my life. That's cool. I really look forward to it. And it's one thing I appreciate also about World Campus is people do share their mm-hmm. their work and their ideas and their experiments. You know, we're constantly working on little working groups and yep. stuff, but that is um, exciting. Yeah, so nice. I appreciate that. Now I have something to look forward nice. to. <laughs> Chris, it sounds like um, the way you're describing it, at least, um, that this entire process, you know, professionally, but also with respect to your education, has been really forward moving. Have there been moments that you feel like, oh, um, I guess I'm asking, like, is it hindsight is 2020? And so the path mm-hmm. is clear now? Or have there been roadblocks or challenges or missteps <clears throat> over the course of this process that that have been, um, you know, difficult in any way? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, it's maybe it's cliche to say this, but any of those missteps are learning opportunities. And if you're sure. in a good position where you, like I said, so much of this comes down to being able to control your own destiny. Like if you mm-hmm. do have a misstep where you're going in a, in, into a kind of a dead end with something, you can um, be in the position to shift that into a more um, sort of mm-hmm. profitable direction for, for yourself. And, um, you know, and again, I'm in a leadership position too. And, and my my bosses are not expecting me to take conventional approaches to the work mm-hmm. that I do. They, you know, I, the online learning space is highly is highly competitive, and so maintaining the status quo is just is not really an option for what we do. Any misstep is a is a learning opportunity. It's an avenue that I explored and realized that it's not worthwhile to mm-hmm. pursue any further, and so I just go in a different direction. And so there's a certain amount of failure that's um, incumbent on doing any kind of innovation. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that again, yeah, thinking thinking that way makes you not get too stressed out about. I mean, I do mm-hmm. get stressed out about it. Like if you spend three weeks building something <laughs> or studying something and then realize that it was a waste of time, then that kind mm-hmm. of stinks. But um, 
but you know, you just need to be um, self-aware and, and mm-hmm. all this stuff connects together. Like the, the position that I've put myself in life, it's really helpful mm-hmm. to navigate those, those barriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you've really illustrated how important like attitude mindset is in, um, in addition to everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Has there been anything about the PhD process um, that has been surprising to you or unexpected, like things maybe in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> I think the the interesting thing for me now and, and for anybody who's getting into these sort of advanced degrees at a, at a later part of their life is I'm in classes right now that have students that are much younger than me. Mm-hmm. in different phases of their life and don't have the professional experience I have. So just kind of navig- navigating those conversations and, um, you know, bringing something to the table. And, and this is why collaborative learning is so important because different people are bringing different life experiences to the table and enriching that conversation. But just try- navigating those collaborations with my peers and um, enriching the conversation, you know, through my own experiences and kind of listening um to, to their experiences and, and their positions and not belittling anything that anybody else has to say or, you know, and just really just respecting all those different positions is really, that's another important thing is to just, uh, is to just be open-minded about those interactions. But it is, you know, it, it's awkward, at, awkward at times because I'm some, sometimes these are just not people that I would hang out with on my, on my own free time, <laughs> not because just cause they're in an entirely different phase of their life and I just don't have a lot in sure. common with them. It's just kind of natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that that's, that's an interesting challenge. The other thing is, again, I've been longtime colleagues with many of the mm-hmm. faculty in my program. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the graduate students will call them Dr. So-and-so and I'll call them, you know, by their first name because that's the relationship right. that I have with them. And so there's some awkwardness where I'm the only person that's calling my fa- my instructor by their first name. Like I'm buddies with them because I literally am buddies with them. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's, we- that's weird. And I just chalk it up to you know, that this was the path that I chose and I'll just deal with the weirdness of it, but. (laughs) (laughs) For its advantages and disadvantages, right? Both sides. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say one of the things I've noticed from people who are earning their PhD is there's a sense of calm confidence that comes with deep diving into Mm -hmm. an area and my own personal just witnessing that is a side effect of going into a PhD program or doing some deep research that um, maybe people aren't even self-aware of, like they wear a different confidence about themselves. Yeah. It's a, well, and that's a good point. And I will say when you start this, whether it's a master's or, or a PhD, you will have periods of time where you're struggling with the, you're struggling with the concepts. You feel like not confident about what you're saying. You, you just feel mm-hmm. like, oh, what I, oh, I just said something that was really stupid. Like this other <laughs> student in the class is way smarter and more experienced than I am. Mm-hmm. And the way that they constructed that idea was way better than what I just said. And I feel like an idiot. I study learning. So I know that that tension, that that feeling is part, is part of the learning process. Like it is part of you. It's metacognition. It's becoming aware that mm-hmm. you have things that you still need to learn and to articulate the ideas and understand the ideas the way you need to. Um, and so you're going to, there's going to be a, a hump where you're, um, you're really, you often feel like uh, what I said was just dumb or I just can't get the, the way that that person articulated that was way better than, than what I was thinking. You're going to 
you're going to have that and you're going to get over it. And one way that I think you know that you're getting ready for a dissertation, for example, is I can go into a conversation like this and just sort of naturally talk about my research and all the theoretical underpinnings and Mm -hmm. how these things interact with each other. or I can relate new things kind of naturally. Then you're like, okay, now I am ready to to defend like a really super complex idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so just get, give yourself a break. Don't, you know, get too frustrated with yourself. Like that is a very natural part of the process that everybody um, experiences and you'll get over it. And then by the time you're getting ready to do a dissertation, um, you've, you've had all those awkward experiences and beaten yourself up enough <laughs> and passed it, um, that you're, that you're going to be like the best in the world at the thing you're studying, which is an exciting mm. thing. You just need to get over mm-hmm. that. Hmm. What great perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, it's been really fascinating to learn not only about what you're studying, but sort of how you've come to study it. That's been really enlightening. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. What a great discussion, Jen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was the first time like really having a deep discussion with Chris. I mean, I've talked to him over the years, but listening to him and his motivations and how intentional he was and the work he's doing moving forward, it was it was great. Mm-hmm, I agree. Intention, motivations, those are big words that came to mind for me too throughout our conversation. What struck me too is how he's been able to find synergy across the different aspects of his work, the different domains in which he's working and living his life to be able to, you know, find some alignment, to be able to make things work more effectively for him. Absolutely. He like the PhD is part of his life. He mm-hmm. didn't have to like stop part of his life to start earning it. He just kind of worked it into his life. Mm-hmm. He was talking about running and um in the morning and listening to his articles, but like he was able to continue to do both at the mm-hmm. same time. Like very good use of your time. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's such an important, you know, mindset that like way to um, make things work to find that kind of synergy. And and clearly going back to what we were saying before, his passion is at the source of all of that. I think his his motivation, his intentional perspective. Right. And and I mean, I guess I knew this on some level, but like the way he talked about while earning his PhD, you're looking for ways to make original contributions to the field, to like chart new research, to start new conversations. And that's, that's powerful. That's, Mm -hmm. that's a big undertaking, but it's also pretty exciting to be able to ask these questions out there and then, and to lead Mm -hmm. where it goes. That, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And listeners, maybe you have stories in the same vein, stories about your own PhD experiences, your own goals. We would love to hear them. Maybe you have stories about what it's like to do research in new spaces. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you're most curious about, what you're most passionate about. So contact us at fc2c at psu.edu. That's fc, the number two, c at psu.edu. And don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode to see some of the resources that came up in our conversation. Stay tuned for our next episode of From Concept to Creation and bring your curious mind. Thank you so much for listening to From Concept to Creation. This podcast would not be possible without the support of Penn State University and its amazing population of curious minds. Uncovering the process and inner workings of research can sometimes be messy, but it's also rewarding and so interesting. As always, we want you, our listeners, to be part of this community. So please send us your comments and your ideas. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening platform and tune in for the next episode.